This episode of Zero Brightness is brought to you by you. You can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness to sign up to support the show directly and get bonus content multiple times per week. Thank you to everyone who supports the show, and I look forward to meeting more of you soon. So I'm recording this on a pretty average midwinter morning in Minnesota. It's 13 degrees, but with strong icy winds, feels a lot colder. Everything is frozen, the sun has yet to shine. It's basically a gray, lifeless hellhole. If you want to be outside for more than like five minutes, you basically need to wear two full sets of clothes. Inner pants, outer pants, inner coat, outer coat. You need to cover your neck, maybe your face, definitely your hands. You need to have wool socks boots it's a lot man it is a lot and if you've never lived in a climate like this it's kind of wild you know obviously people who aren't from here always ask why do you live here and i don't really have a good answer i mean if you stay somewhere long enough it kind of just becomes your home (laughs) and i guess that's kind of what happened with me and minnesota because i don't have any plans to leave But still, it's a lot. There's so much that goes into surviving here, that goes into not getting sick, not getting injured. You know, even just that ice I mentioned can take you out and cause serious, serious injuries. So a lot of your time is spent avoiding that. Driving is obviously very treacherous. And yet we do it here for like six months out of the year. Oh yeah, that's another thing. The winter's super fucking long. It basically never ends. It starts in October and goes until April or May sometimes. It's a lot. But I think that having that kind of survival element in your everyday life, it does change your mentality. And there is definitely a different way of being that is unique to people who live here or who live in climates that are extreme as ours gives you a different mindset, a different way of looking at things. You can see it reflected in the way that people here make art or socialize, the way that those things change in the winter versus when the weather is nice, the kind of cycles that people fall into, like hunkering down when it's cold to create things or spend time in isolation or solitude and then coming out in the spring. There's a whole different cycle to life here that doesn't exist in other places. It's such a different mindset that I honestly think that it does affect some of my opinions on art and media. Because when I see those mentalities or I see that kind of realistic survival behavior reflected in a work of art, I kind of see myself in it and I can relate to it in some certain ways. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I live in a place that for half of the year, you can't go outside without loading yourself down in gear. And Death Stranding is a game where you can't go outside without loading yourself down in gear. It's funny, that was one of the first things I noticed about Death Stranding. And one thing that I thought immediately when I played it is like, oh yeah, this feels just like living in Minnesota. But... It also ended up being a super prescient thought that would come back many, many hours later as I realized that I think this whole game ended up being about climate anxiety empowering 
through the end of the world. That was my big takeaway from Death Stranding. That was why I ended up really, really, really loving this game. So today I just want to talk a little bit about Death Stranding, give you some thoughts and just get going on this because I know this is a thing that I'm going to return to at least once more, maybe twice more with guests and in discussions. But I just wanted to get the ball rolling and get some of my thoughts out there since I just finished the game and have had a little bit of time to think about it and uh, put some ideas together. So yeah, let's do it. Okay, where to start with Death Stranding? When the game was first announced, it was a big deal because it was the first original IP that Kojima had been attached to in a very long time. For many, many years, he had basically been at Konami, tethered to the Metal Gear series, making new installments of Metal Gear and occasionally getting to work on some kind of spin-off as a producer or director, things like Zone of the Enders or Boktai, but Nothing major. He had basically just been making Metal Gear games. Which was kind of a sad state of affairs if you're familiar with his work. I talked about this a little bit before uh, in a previous episode, but I've always got the sense that Kojima was kind of in a love-hate relationship with Metal Gear. Like, obviously, it was his series that he created, it was his baby, but he also sort of hated making them. Metal Gear Solid, it really felt like was supposed to be the capstone on the whole series. It didn't really feel like there was going to be more after that, and yet there were many more Metal Gear games after that. In a previous episode, I also talked about how I think a big influence on Metal Gear Solid 2 and some of the games that followed was just how much Kojima hated making Metal Gear. All of that meta end of Ava style stuff in Metal Gear Solid 2 seems to be a message directly to the player that Kojima is tired of making Metal Gear Solid games. I think the fact that I could feel that fatigue through the work is part of what led me to have a love-hate relationship with Kojima's work. I mean, the guys made some of the best games I've ever played in my life, and also some of the worst. His games do have this feeling of like boundless creativity. They're stuffed with ideas, both in the story and the gameplay and the presentation. It's like there's always something there to chew on. And that's something that definitely appeals to a lot of people, especially people who like to critique media. A game that gives you a lot of ideas is always going to be at a base level more interesting than a game that doesn't. That said, when you actually break into Kojima's ideas, sometimes things just fall apart. You know, there's some really, really interesting, almost visionary level stuff in Metal Gear Solid and Metal Gear Solid 2 about communication, language, 
and media, the ways that ideas spread, et cetera, et cetera, that revisiting now is almost eerie and like how prescient it is. Those games are also built upon the foundation of like really hokey American military and conspiracy novels, you know, um, stuff like Clive Cussler, I guess, on the low end and maybe Tom Clancy on the high end. And within that, there's a lot of weird like military fetishism and some political stuff that kind of reads a little weird. You combine that with his game's really odd moments of like homophobia and especially misogyny. And, you know, you end up with games that are incredibly, incredibly hard to read. Even when looking at the gameplay of the Metal Gear series, it's like kind of all over the place. The series has a solid foundation and pretty straightforward stealth gameplay, but it quickly opened up into this kind of proto-sandbox style design. And by the time you get to the later Metal Gear Solid games, they're actual full sandbox games. You get big environments to run around in, you can sort of choose how to tackle different challenges, and yet there's still this strong core of like linear action-adventure gameplay that goes all the way back to the series beginnings. To me, a lot of what makes the Metal Gear Solid series interesting is also what makes it frustrating. On the one hand, you do have these pretty straight up, you know, action games. But on the other hand, you've got these crazy, dense, layered stories that incorporate really broad, weird themes, unexpected twists and turns, and a huge dose of like philosophy. It was always interesting to see like what Kojima claimed as his influences in these games, because like I said, to me, a lot of it read as this kind of like American military fiction, but there was also a ton of really left field stuff being incorporated. There were a lot of more high minded influences that were being named. And when you actually played the games, you could see that in the way that the stories tackled these big themes and presented those same themes to the player. One of the biggest like left field influences on the Metal Gear Solid series to me has always been anime. For a series whose art design and aesthetic choices have always strayed pretty far away from anime, I've always felt that Metal Gear Solid had a ton of anime in its presentation, framing, and storytelling. I mean, just on a basic level, if you watch any Metal Gear Solid cutscene and think of, this is anime, you'll realize it's anime. The characters pose in really wild and dramatic ways. They toss off really, really amped up, once again, overdramatic quips. And just the way everything is framed, you're constantly being hit with these like big reveals. And people speak in a certain cadence that will be very familiar to viewers of anime. Metal Gear Solid 2 is actually the game that really hipped me to specifically which series Kojima was pulling from in order to craft the kind of tone and storytelling style of the Metal Gear Solid series. And to me, it's a subgenre of anime that in my head I've always referred to as super sad, grim, dark YA. YA, of course, standing for young adult, being a reference to the YA fiction boom that happened a few years ago, encompassing stuff like uh, the Hunger Games, right? A few years ago, when I kind of like got back into watching anime briefly, 
I was really looking for weird, obscure, preferably horror type anime series. And while I didn't find a ton of straight horror or like, you know, very strict genre horror uh, anime series, I found a bunch of stuff that I would call super sad, grim, dark YA anime series. Now, let me explain what this genre or sub 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 genre is. Basically, these are series that star teenagers or preteens put into very, very dark, um, violent, usually apocalyptic scenarios. And the kind of tone and intention of all these series is the same. It's basically to show you this super, super unbearably dark, depressing and sad universe and have you experience it through the sort of like hopeful eyes of a young person. A lot of these series are very, very hopeless <laughs> in tone and usually have very, very dark endings and uh yeah it's such a strange and specific thing that was really really popular i think in the late 90s and early 2000s and then kind of had another resurgence more recently a couple of older examples of the style would be elf and lied and now and then here and there both of those shows have this kind of weird, uh, super dark sci-fi feel to them. There's almost like an alternate universe kind of feel to now and then here and there. But they're both like incredibly dark and depressing shows. A more recent example of this would be the show Future Diary. I would also throw the first season of Darker Than Black in here as well. Kind of an odd show, but I think it definitely fits the vibe. It kind of has a similar tone, but a lot of that like darkness has been sanitized a bit. It's not as brutal and violent and depressing as those older shows are, which I think is a good thing. Like, I'm not necessarily out here telling you that you should watch these shows or that this is a great genre of anime. I just like, I had a period in my life where I was like super, super, super depressed, like so depressed that I was not exactly functioning and in that time i found some sort of catharsis in watching all these shows now i think some hallmarks of this genre besides the aesthetic stuff like once again a lot of them are apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic uh, a lot of them take place in very dystopian kind of ruined worlds but the focus is generally on the characters and character drama there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, what the characters are going through emotionally and just zeroing in on the interactions between characters. There's also a really big emphasis on just emotional pain, suffering, darkness and sadness. I mean, I think I kind of mentioned this stuff in a previous episode when we were talking about the idea of like emotional torture porn which isn't exactly a genre but i have said before that sometimes you know you're watching a movie or you're watching a show and it almost feels like the whole thing is set up just to watch characters suffer emotionally and that's definitely what all these shows do 
I think that sometimes it can go too far and come off as a little bit voyeuristic, especially since the characters are generally very young. But if a show is well written and well made, a lot of times that really just reads as character drama. The show can be super, super dark, it can be super, super grim, and yet it really just is all in service of telling this story. Now, the granddaddy of this whole genre, and the one that's also the most weird, problematic, and uncomfortable, is of course Neon Genesis Evangelion. And yes, I know this is another solo essay where I talk about Neon Genesis Evangelion. I don't know why it keeps coming up other than the fact that I'm maybe trying to subconsciously like reckon with the fact that the show has been in my head for many, many years, and it's such a weird, strange thing to have in there. But I digress. The point is that Neon Genesis Evangelion kind of invented this genre, or at least like brought about this genre. Now, Evangelion itself, as I'm sure most of you are familiar with, is essentially a play on those 80s mecha animes, the, you know, the big dogs of the giant robot genre like Gundam, where these kind of starry-eyed teenagers would have to fight wars in giant robots. Now, although Gundam did have a lot of political reality in it and at times got very, very dark, Evangelion took it in a totally different direction. It not only went super dark, but it also went super personal. So like I said before, it's a story that takes place in a large apocalyptic setting that's super dark and depressing and has all this crazy stuff going on. You know, there's kids fighting aliens and giant robots. And yet the focus of the show always seems to be character drama, character interactions. We spend most of the runtime of the show focusing on that, interrogating these characters' feelings, their inner monologues, their inner thoughts and intentions and just what's going on with them. That combined with the super, super dark, depressing and disturbing tone was really what was revolutionary about Evangelion. It's really wild because some people refer to Evangelion as the Japanese Star Wars. Not because it has a lot in common with Star Wars specifically, but because of the influence that it had on the Japanese film industry and specifically on the anime industry. It was a huge epic production that mixed this really, really classic form of storytelling, that being like the giant robot anime with these really radical new takes on how to do really like raw character drama within the medium. And like I said, you know, if you're really a fan of giant robot stuff, especially from the 80s and early 90s, you can see how we got to Evangelion. It didn't exactly come out of nowhere, but even comparing, you know, those older series to Evangelion, you see that it's just on a totally different wavelength and it's doing something totally, totally different. Now, although Metal Gear Solid 2 is the one that really made me realize that Kojima was hugely influenced by Neon Genesis Evangelion, you can kind of see it in the whole premise of the series. The Metal Gear Solid games specifically are technically giant robot stories that 
have zero focus on said robots. They're not even really a huge part of what you do in the game or most of the cutscenes. They're kind of just there to like move the plot forward. The focus is always on character interactions, intrigue, political drama, things like that. It's a story that uses all of these signifiers to tell its own story and to create its own world. Now, the comparison between this subgenre of anime and Metal Gear Solid might not seem obvious at first because Metal Gear Solid doesn't really have a normal way of presenting conversations or character drama. It's a lot of really odd writing, a lot of really odd line reads. Sometimes it feels like characters are just saying catchphrases at each other. But within those catchphrases, we actually see some really dark philosophical underpinnings. You know, characters asking if love can bloom on the battlefield or questioning the nature of friendship juxtaposed against this kind of horrifying endless war that is the backdrop of the Metal Gear Solid series. It's very grim, dark anime. These characters are caught inside a war machine and caught inside a 21st century panopticon that they just cannot escape from. And within that, they start to have existential crises. I don't think it's a coincidence that a huge theme throughout the entire Metal Gear Solid series is identity. Characters questioning their own identity or being told that their identity is false, or even in the first game finding out that major characters' identities are completely false and made up. There is this really existential feel to the plot lines of Metal Gear Solid games. And once again, putting it within what is essentially a grim, dystopian world gives it a totally different feel. There's extra weight and there's extra heft to it. To me, this was one of the most fascinating things about the Metal Gear Solid series, that a simple action game could explore deeper themes and ideas like this within the confines of a pretty rigid structure. That said, how effective these interrogations were varies greatly from game to game. One of my biggest criticisms of the Metal Gear Solid games is that they're kind of incoherent. A lot of times these really interesting philosophical and story ideas are sandwiched in between a bunch of random shit that makes no sense or in between a bunch of kind of mundane drama that I don't think really adds anything to the greater work. There was also always a tension between the gameplay and the story. In Metal Gear Solid games, the gameplay is always king. It always had this very, very systems-based, technical, and well-designed feel to the gameplay. So finding a way to fit that story into, once again, that rigid structure was always a challenge. I think Metal Gear Solid does it really well, and Metal Gear Solid 2 kind of fails because the two sides of the game clash a lot. Metal Gear Solid 3 manages to have a more symbiotic relationship between the elements, but that's mostly from toning down the story a lot. Metal Gear Solid 4, which I think is probably the worst game in the series, I mean, I take that back, it's absolutely the worst game in the series, is the one where we see that tension played out in the most extreme way. 
The gameplay is more like an action game than ever before, and yet the game will just pause multiple times throughout its run to play a movie-length cutscene. I just don't think this structure is flattering to either part of the game, and it doesn't help that Metal Gear Solid 4 is, in my opinion, the most incoherent out of all of them in terms of its story, its themes, and especially its philosophy. I'm not really going to get into it, but you can go on YouTube and find some very, very good dissections of the philosophy of Metal Gear Solid 4, and it's a lot of people pointing out that it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Even Metal Gear Solid 5, which is a much, much better game, still doesn't really resolve these tensions. It markets itself as kind of an open world sandbox game, and it does have a bit of that feel, but it's also more than willing to stop you dead in your tracks to watch long cutscenes or carry out extremely linear missions that are full of dialogue and scripted events. Once again, the tension between Kojima wanting to make a movie and wanting to make a sandbox game has always been something at the heart of Metal Gear Solid games, and it's something that's always kind of bothered me. It's made, you know, about half the games in the series kind of not fun to play, in my opinion, and even harder to analyze from a story themes perspective, right? Like, how are we supposed to really dig into what the message of these games is if the messaging is kind of awkwardly tucked in between other elements, whether that's gameplay or side stories? Part of the reason that Death Stranding is so, so incredible is that it manages to unite these two halves of the game. Like, yes, of course, there are movie-length cutscenes within this game, but from the moment you start playing, you see that the world itself and the environment of the game tell as much, if not more, of the story than the dialogue and the cutscenes. It's such a fantastic change from the Metal Gear Solid series, where the world and its story are always in constant conflict. In this game, the world is the story, and it has so, so much to say to the player. Death Stranding explores the horror of survival and basic existence by placing you in a still deteriorating post-apocalypse. The world of Death Stranding is really, really mysterious, but also fascinating. At some point in the recent past, there was something called a Death Stranding that fundamentally changed the world and its physics and everything about it. The game's world is eerily familiar, yet undeniably strange and otherworldly. It's often gray and cloudy, strange paranormal events are apt to happen at any moment, weird things hang in the sky. There is a very, very Junji Ito-esque feel to the world itself, especially in the way that he liked to render sort of half-destroyed hell worlds with weird things hanging in the sky. I think that's a very specifically Junji Ito-esque feature that we see all over this game. This world also has totally different rules. The rain can age you and destroy the materials you're carrying. If you kill somebody, you have to burn their body, otherwise it'll explode and take out a huge chunk of the map permanently, and also make that area more susceptible to those otherworldly supernatural attacks. 
The barrier between the world of the living and the world of the dead is incredibly, incredibly thin. Ghosts pop up out of nowhere, and a lot of the gear that you're carrying is basically to detect and deal with these horrifying supernatural entities. The vibe I get from the world of Death Stranding is it's a world that doesn't want humanity to exist on it anymore. A world that is trying to kill humankind. Does that sound familiar? Because that's the vibe that I'm getting from the real world that we actually live in. Once again, I think I have a certain perspective on this from living in a place with such an extreme climate, and that's only gotten more and more extreme and treacherous as climate changes over time and we experience global warming. When I look at the difficulty and stress that we go through dealing with the winter here, coupled with, you know, the diseases that we are all dealing with, like the pandemic and with cancer, especially in certain areas of Minnesota where, you know, manufacturers have dumped a lot of chemicals in the water, you'll see that there's hugely, hugely increased cancer rates. It's treacherous to just be alive. I think that there is a sort of feeling that the world doesn't want us here anymore because we've been so cruel and unkind to it, because we've just completely trashed the earth. For me personally, that's where a lot of my climate change anxiety comes from. I feel like we can't right the ship and we can't turn things around. I'm not even sure if anyone has the power anymore, but the people who do are completely, completely uninterested. The only comfort that I take in it is that I'll be dead by the time the shit really hits the fan, but if the last few years are any indication, it's gonna be a pretty uncomfortable rest of my life, even though it won't be the actual end of the world. Playing Death Stranding, it really sort of like expressed those feelings. Moving through this world that is seemingly dead and dying while trying to keep yourself alive is just such a strange and moving experience. There's a lot of horror in it because you see your own existence reflected back at you. But there's also a catharsis in it because Death Stranding, unlike those super grim dark YA anime series, is actually a very hopeful game. Even the conclusion of it is like weirdly hopeful. I think that Kojima's take on all this stuff is that you have to keep on keeping on. I mean, there's a little voice that says that to you almost constantly, and I think it's such a nice touch and a nice piece of like thematic sound design because you realize that, I mean, you don't really have much of a choice. You just have to keep on keeping on. And yet, that doesn't make any of the horror that's in this game less horrifying. The first time that either you die or you don't properly dispose of the body and you see what's called a void out where it explodes and destroys a chunk of the map permanently, it's terrifying. You realize that just like in real life, your actions have consequences. And it's just such a heavy thing to put into a video game. There's actually a lot of heavy themes within this game just from the gameplay side. The game has an online element that's almost similar to a FromSoft game, except you can never really summon anyone into your game or you never really see other people in your game. 
Instead, you can collaborate with them by picking up their lost packages or working together to build structures throughout the world. This is really interesting because I think it plays into the game's theme of working together with others and working together to rebuild or rehabilitate society, even though you can't be physically in the same area as them. It's one big piece of this game that ended up being super, super prescient and relevant once the pandemic started. And it's something that I want to talk about in a second here, but I think it's interesting because like they hit upon it not because Kojima can see the future, but because I do think this game is very much about climate change and climate anxiety. And anyone who's been looking at these things, who's been researching these things and seeing what the data says, would have known that a huge crippling pandemic was inevitable. And there was going to be a time when people couldn't go outside and couldn't be face to face. It still doesn't change how eerie it is to be playing as a delivery man, bringing necessities to people who can't see them face to face or go inside their homes even. You're always kept at arm's reach from 99% of the characters in the game. And yeah, there's something very, very real about that. I think that's my favorite thing about the world in Death Stranding. It's so strange and otherworldly, yet it's also so, so real. That realism manifests itself in many ways as you're playing the game. One of my favorite is how you have to plan to do anything. And now a huge part of the game is basically packing for travel. Now, personally, this is something that I love doing. And I think anyone who's been on tour as a musician will totally understand this aspect of the game. Getting your gear, whether that's music gear or personal gear, ready to go on tour is like super satisfying and super fun. There's something just really exciting about like buying carabiners and like buying travel size soaps and stuff and getting ready to go out on this big adventure. It's really exciting. And Death Stranding actually manages to take that feeling and turn it into an important part of the game. Death Stranding, the flow of the game is essentially that you'll start from one of the many kind of home bases in the game. You'll prepare yourself for your journey, grab your cargo, and then go out to complete your deliveries. Once you're out in the field, you can kind of do whatever you want. You could, for example, load up on cargo for multiple deliveries and go around and make them all. You could take cargo for one and then start going in between delivery sites because you can also pick up more cargo at each delivery site. Or you could go do a big run, go back to your home base, do another big run, etc., etc., etc. There are certain deliveries that will move the plot forward, so I guess we could call those story missions. And in between, there's a bunch of other optional stuff for you to do. However, that planning for your run, that kind of initial gearing up, is maybe my favorite part of this game, or it's one of my favorite parts of this game. I have to give a lot of props to the design of the menus in this game. You know, the menus for gearing your character up as well as the inventory systems while you're out in the field are fantastic. They look great, they're very tactile, and they have a strong sense of touch and feel to them. They're also really, really reminiscent of the inventory and menu systems that we had seen in the Metal Gear Solid series, but in my opinion, they're just so far advanced. 
even going back and playing Metal Gear Solid 5, like you can see that it has a lot of the same ideas, but the menus are just not as slick and the controls aren't as good. In Death Stranding, they're fantastic. So everything is fun. Even if it's just filling up your backpack, it's fun. There also is kind of a subtle ecological theme there of, you know, being conservative with your resources, watching the battery on your vehicle if you're using a vehicle, or trying to decide how much you can carry or how much you can afford to use in terms of your different resources. This is another thing that definitely reminds me of being on tour. I think a lot of musicians end up having a little bit more of a real perspective on their ecological impact and how many resources they use in a day after going on tour. Like when you have to tally up how much you're spending on gas and how much you're spending on food and supplies every day and compare that against the money you're making at shows, you end up kind of, you know, having that ecological perspective. like is what I'm doing sustainable, either for me or for the environment. Death Stranding, once again, captures that feeling really, really well. It's also fascinating to me how they can take those sort of travel and planning elements and make them a really, really fun part of the game. Even while you're out in the field, you might hit obstacles and decide to take a different course, which requires you to open up your map and chart a different route, Or you might just say, fuck it, and try and climb up a mountain on an ATV. Like, you have so many different options, and every moment of the game is very fun and very, very adventurous. This is actually something that I really, really loved about Days Gone. Listeners of the show will know that Days Gone is like one of my favorite games ever. I absolutely love it. And that was also a great part of that game. In that game, a huge element of it is riding around on a motorcycle and doing upkeep on the motorcycle, finding fuel, having supplies to fix your motorcycle, etc, etc, etc. Early in the game, when you don't have a lot of supplies and you're not very good at the game, there is that really kind of spontaneous adventure feel to the game. Like for one reason or another, your bike might break down on the side of the road and you'll need to go on a little mini adventure to find fuel. Along the way, you might find a bandit camp and clear it out, or you might find an NPC to talk to, or a cache of items or weapons. The whole game just felt very open and very fun. It kind of felt like procedurally generated adventure, but done the right way. Like, rather than wonky level design that's done by an AI or neural network, it's a game that is just constantly trying to surprise you with well-designed terrain, well-designed quests, and twists and turns. I think that Days Gone and Death Stranding actually have a lot in common. And I guess maybe this is just my little brief plug for anyone who really loved Death Stranding who hasn't played Days Gone to go play Days Gone. I think both are very invested in the idea of survival as a concept and building a video game out of survival, trying to give you that experience of being out there, lost, alone, and having to rely on just your wits and whatever gear you've cobbled together to survive. Both are also horror games, and although part of that horror comes from that survival element, the biggest aspect of the horror are aesthetically quote-unquote scary enemies. In Days Gone, they're zombies, and I've definitely talked about this before but like the zombies in that game are so weird and creepy 
The way that they're animated, the way that they move in hordes, it's just horrifying. And I really haven't seen anything like it in another, you know, video game featuring zombies. In Death Stranding, the enemies are even weirder and creepier. They're these things called BTs that are basically ghosts. Initially, they appear as human-like forms. They sort of look like shades or shadows, but they're tethered to the ground, which is also kind of weird and creepy. But if they manage to grab you and pull you down in kind of a horde-like fashion, similar to Days Gone, you'll end up in this kind of other world fighting their true form, which is usually some sort of much larger, crazy beast. These fights are really tense and scary. Until the later game when you have all the gear you need, these enemies are way more powerful than you. And the game uses aesthetic choices to make these fights, once again, super tense, super heart racing, and scary. You also have options to run away, and you always have the options to avoid violent confrontation, which is also one of my favorite things about this game. It really is a game where it just gives you a big world to explore and do it in the way that you choose, which once again puts it way above any Metal Gear Solid game I've played in my opinion. In both games, the inclusion of these horror elements and specifically the enemies, even if you choose not to fight them, is really, really, really important. It manages to ratchet up the tension and really make that survival element feel more pressing. It just makes you more worried about how you're going to get from point A to point B without dying. In Death Stranding, I mean, there's even a mechanic where you can come back as many times as you want. There are consequences. It's not exactly consequence free, but dying is definitely not the end of the game. And yet the game is pushing you so much to not die that it really highlights how important survival is to the game and how important it is that you survive the game. Now, in the context of a video game, the term survival is pretty loaded. A lot of the times, survival games are games that really lean into their difficulty, they lean into the sim aspect of it, and they present a really challenging systems-based experience. Death Stranding has a little bit of that in its DNA, but it is 100% not that kind of game. Death Stranding is fun, dude. I mean, from the minute I picked it up, I was like, this game is fucking fun. It's fun to run around. It's fun to drive your little car. It's fun to set up ladders and anchor bungee hooks. It's even fun to sneak when you have to sneak. It's fun to use crazy gadgets to take down ghosts. Everything in the game is just pure fun. And, you know, it's kind of ironic considering that the game has you playing a delivery guy, following routes, and basically doing a day job, because it ends up being a much more flexible and fun sandbox experience than anything Kojima has done before. You really can tackle any situation in whatever way you see fit. And that makes playing the game just super, super fun. In fact, this game is so fun that I kind of just didn't pay attention to the story and themes until relatively late in the game. And that's even in and of itself a really, really cool piece of design. The game presents you with this really strange and engrossing world and lets you just have a bunch of fun in it. So later when the story pivots, you're really, really attached to it, even if you're not hanging on every word that the characters are saying. 
My appraisal of the game early on was basically that the story didn't matter and I just really liked playing it and existing in its world. That's also kind of the same thing I said about Days Gone, although for different reasons. Days Gone has a really specific story and tone that I would compare to like a really corny AMC show. I mean, specifically it has big Sons of Anarchy vibes. And yet, you spend so much time in the world, you become so engrossed in it that in the end game, when the stakes are raised and the characters' lives are threatened, you find yourself caring quite a bit. I felt the same way with Death Stranding, but the pivot at the end of the game is just much stronger and has a lot more depth to it than what we saw in Days Gone. Ultimately, the story of Death Stranding is actually fantastic, which is not something I expected to say when I started playing that game. There are a few elements that really make the story stand out in this game. One of the biggest ones, in my opinion, is the presentation. For years now, people have saying that Kojima should just make a movie, and he basically did. Death Stranding features real actors digitized, and their performances actually add a lot to the game's story. The acting is really good, the delivery is really good, and most importantly, I think there's a symbiosis between the writing and the delivery that makes the lines actually land. I think if anything, the script in Death Stranding is maybe even more over the top and outlandish than something that you'd see in a Metal Gear Solid game, but because of that acting and delivery, it just works. The casting is really, really great. Each character is very well chosen. Even the characters that were mostly chosen for physical likeness and then paired with a different voice actor, like the character who bears a resemblance to Guillermo del Toro, that ended up being a really good choice. And I think that in past games, it would have been represented by just like a fictional digital character trying to give a facsimile of a theater experience. Here you're kind of just getting that cinematic experience and it works super, super well. It's one of those things that kind of once again snuck up on me. Early in the game is kind of a novelty like, oh, I'm the guy from The Walking Dead. Oh, that's a famous film director. But later on you realize that a lot of those cutscenes work because of that choice. There's even a lot of moments that are kind of like weird and meta and video gamey that once again also work because the cutscenes have that cinematic feel to them so those little moments stand out as funny or interesting. The direction in the game is also great and it's once again it's really a standout aspect because it looks so much like a movie via the inclusion of real actors and real people. Now you can see things like blocking you know, different shots, lighting, things like that. And they're all incredibly well done in this game. It's the first Kojima game where I didn't really mind watching super long cutscenes because they were very well directed, very well acted. And I think they're really well written. Once again, I've been a huge critic of Kojima's writing, but I think that Death Stranding makes a lot of smart choices relative to Kojima's style and actually delivers something that is just really, really fucking good. 
this is something that once again really took me by surprise because early in the game you see a lot of Kojima hallmarks. There's tons of catchphrases, weird little jokes, and tons and tons of cryptic acronyms. I think in the Metal Gear Solid games this stuff all kind of bugged me because I just didn't really see the purpose of it. However, in Metal Gear Solid, it does really add to the game's world building. I think setting the game in a really alien world where that world is a huge element of the game and like kind of a main character in the game makes all of those hallmarks of Kojima's style work a lot better. When somebody says a weird acronym or explains to you some, you know, obscure system and how it works within the game world, you're actually interested. Whereas in Metal Gear Solid, I felt like a lot of that stuff was just jargon for jargon's sake. They were kind of just piling on to make the game feel more layered and complex. Death Stranding, by its very nature, is just very, very layered. And it's also presented in a way where you can do a deep dive into all the emails and supplemental texts you get, and you could just totally go wild learning about all the lore, or you could just take the game at face value and appreciate it for what it is. Either approach works. And I found that throughout the game, I kind of changed how I took in the story and the lore. Sometimes I would go read all that supplemental stuff and get really obsessed with it. Other times I would just kind of pay attention to the story and the character conversations and use context clues to infer what was going on. Once again, I feel like Kojima finally nailed that sandbox feel he was going for. Not just in the gameplay, but in the story. It's a dense, rich work. It has a lot to say, both in terms of how much text there is, and also in terms of its themes and the depth thereof. And yet, it doesn't force feed the player all this stuff. I didn't generally feel lost while playing the game. Once again, I think setting it in such a strange and unique world was such a boon to this game's story. A lot of times you just take stuff in and suspend disbelief because you're not in a familiar place. That's a really powerful element of this game and something that works super, super well. I also think it approaches those themes in a really smart way. Kojima's always towed the line between things being very strange and allegorical and elements in his story being super, super direct and dead simple. Death Stranding has elements of both. Like, there are things in the game that are clearly allegorical or metaphorical. Like, a lot of the ecological devastation we see in the game is highly stylized and presented as a metaphor. The fact that there are so many whales, and whales are such a distinct part of the game's presentation of ecological collapse, for example, is something that's ripped straight out of actual ecology. Like, whales are like a keystone species of any ecosystem that they're a part of. They're seen as kind of a bellwether of the health of the entire ecosystem. So when whales die, or when they beach themselves, it's seen as a very, very bad thing. And it's also just a very powerful image of ecological collapse and ecological death. We see that all over the place in the environment of Death Stranding. 
Those void outs that I mentioned earlier are a way to make humans' impact on the environment very real and visceral. There's also a supernatural story element where people are able to connect to each other via a sort of shared consciousness called the beach. And once again, I think it's a great metaphor for the way that we all share the burden of protecting the environment that we live in and the way that when ecological devastation happens, we're all affected by it the same and we're all culpable in some way. That said, as you move throughout the game and you do deliveries and meet characters, a lot of that stuff is very direct and very real. Once again, a lot of people saw themselves in the game, you know, when they were seeing these kind of vault dwellers, to borrow a term from another game, who couldn't come outside, who couldn't, you know, meet face to face with other people and were basically just forced to shelter from the incredibly harsh environment that the world of Death Stranding presents. These interactions also give you a ton of great small moments of character drama, which is, once again, something this game excels at where I think Kojima's older stuff doesn't really hit the nail on the head there. It's a really, really impressive show of storytelling and presentation prowess. And it doesn't really let up for the entirety of the game. The game is always finding new and interesting ways to present its story, to present different cutscenes and ideas to you in novel ways, and it managed to hold my interest, which once again is huge. I'm the kind of person who's always saying that I want to skip all the cutscenes and I mostly watch them out of guilt. I just like to play games. And yet I was just sitting there watching the cutscenes in this game and enjoying it. They're very, very good. For me, as someone who's been kind of critical of Kojima, despite also being a fan of some of his stuff, this was really that like, finally moment, you know, finally. Kojima put all of his ideas that he's been finessing and, you know, playing with for years and years and years into one game. And he really just nailed it. I mean, him and the massive team of people who helped write and present and create this game, obviously. But there has been a thing within the last few years of Japanese auteurs who have been working for a long time in an industry that couldn't really fully realize their ideas, finally getting to make a definitive work that presents players with the game they've always wanted to make. That was kind of my read on Near Automata, which was a game by Another auteur who has a really, really varied gameography in terms of theme, style, and definitely quality. Like, there's some really great stuff, there's some really bad stuff, but Nier Automata finally put it all into one game that said what he wanted to say, presented it in the way that he wanted to present it. It was also just a fun game to play. It really was just like such an exciting and satisfying definitive moment from someone who's a great artist even though they've also been frustrating at a lot of different points in their career. Death Stranding also has the unique position of being exactly the right game at exactly the right time. It's one of those great epochal works of art that just says what a lot of us are feeling or that puts into words and images 
things that are really weighing on us heavily. Like I've said a few times throughout this episode, there's a huge catharsis in playing Death Stranding, in seeing the things that weigh on us so heavily every day turned into great art. There's also a maturity to Death Stranding. It really feels like a work by someone who loves all that kind of somewhat childish media that I was talking about earlier, like super grimdark YA anime, you know, and like the kind of philosophy and literature that you read when you're in high school. But he managed to actually synthesize it into something that speaks to the human experience with empathy and compassion and wisdom at times, even. I also really love that the game does have kind of a hopeful twist to it. I love that it doesn't tell people to give up or just give in to despair completely. Because as we've talked about in previous episodes of this show, there is something really enticing about that kind of apocalyptic fiction or fiction that kind of presents apocalyptic depression. That kind of darkness in storytelling is really, really seductive. But in the real world, we always have to keep on keeping on. We have to do our jobs. We have to do the things we need to do to survive. And that's what I love about Death Stranding, that ultimately it's about survival. It's about the horror of survival. It's about the existential dread of survival, but it's also about the triumph of survival. Even if the triumph is something very, very small, or even if it ends up being a Pyrrhic victory, we have to keep on keeping on. 